Hello, it's Wednesday, January the 19th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming, as ever, from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... We've been adding probiotics to our diet to eat a little more healthily, but now the new trend is postbiotics. Building regulations, why they're going to change, and quite soon because of soaring temperatures in the United Kingdom. Also, the problems with 5G and American airports, which could lead to a number of flights to the States being grounded. But first, the Prime Minister. In ever deeper trouble, one Conservative MP has defected to the Labour Party and another senior former Cabinet Minister telling Boris Johnson at Primes' question time, for God's sake, man, just go. But will he? Boris Johnson's woes are deepening as the Bury South Conservative MP Christian Wakeford crossed the floor of the House in a dramatic moment at the start of Primes' questions. He said in a letter to Boris Johnson, you and the Conservative Party as a whole have shown yourselves incapable of offering the leadership and government this country deserves. When he was asked as to whether he might resign, he simply replied, Boris Johnson, at the dispatch box, no. Joining me now is Robert Woolard, who's co-founder and former chairman of Grassroots Conservatives and the current chairman of Grassroots Britain. Mr Woolard, he's in a lot of trouble, isn't he? A defection. David Davis, a former cabinet minister, saying in the Commons chamber today, for God's sake, go, resign. Yeah, he is in a lot of trouble and he's been a bit of a clot over these alleged parties at Downing Street. Who on earth was advising him at the time? I haven't the faintest idea probably a senior civil servant, I imagine. But leaving that to one side, as for the defection, I don't agree with the way these things go. I think if you've been elected as a Conservative MP, uh, then you stand down and a by-election is called and you put yourself, your name forward as a whatever party you want to stand for, but not to just switch when you feel like it. Yeah, I imagine some of those people who voted for him will be pretty furious. But it's still a telling moment for the Prime Minister, isn't it? Because Bury South is one of those seats which the Conservatives uh, w- w- didn't expect to win. Uh, uh, it's up in the Red Wall Territory, Labour heartland. Yeah. Polls are suggesting that the Tories are way behind now, the Labour Party, in those seats. Is the only way they can turn this round, Mr Wallard, for the Prime Minister to go? No, I don't think so at this moment in time, at this precise moment in time. He's made, he's made some horrendous mistakes. He's owned up to them. Sue Gray is investigating all this. Now, she looks a pretty tough cookie if you... Uh, I've not met her, but I've looked up everything on her. She'll get to the bottom of what exactly went on, but it's not just... We have to understand this is May 2020, I think, um, you know, it's serious. Of course, it's serious, and it's appalling that governments. And of course, he's taken the blame as the head of the government. But a lot of other people involved in this, a lot of civil servants, were no doubt at these uh, drinks dues. They don't report to Boris. They report to the civil service, service civil service line manager, um, or to the head of the civil service. But leaving that to one side, yes, he can turn it around, but he hasn't got much time. And we need, we need, this government has become somewhat rudderless, in my view, and all over the place, uh, recent days. Boris looks absolutely dreadful. I mean, he's obviously borne the brunt of the, what's gone on this last couple of years, but he's got to get back on track, and he hasn't got much time to do it. How long has he got, do you think? 
Well, Howard Wilson famously said, a week in politics is a long time. Uh, and uh, I think he's got a week or two. I think he's got to get back onto form. This is not the Boris. We have not seen in recent times the Boris that we all elected. He's lost his spark. He's lost his mojo, as they call it. He's got to get back on form. Perhaps he needs a damn good holiday. I don't know. It wouldn't be surprising, considering what he's been through. But a lot of people have gone through some horrendous things during this pandemic, uh, families uh, particularly. And I think he's now, whoever's been advising him, I would have a complete clear out of advisors if they have not been really conveying uh, what they should have been conveying to him. And, and get back on form. Get, I mean, the only person who seems to be pushing uh, very hard with the things that we're all, many of us are interested in, is Liz Truss. Secretary. Well, Home Foreign Secretary, she's been pushing hard on global Britain. She's got a lot of mm. trade deals under her belt. Uh, we've got to get this country going again. And frankly, we're, Putin's just about to invade Ukraine. It's not a good time to change government or change prime minister of the government. Let's put it that way. Very interesting. That's um, Robert Woolard, co-founder and former chairman of Grassroots Conservatives, who's also the chairman of Grassroots Britain. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So airline bosses are expressing concern at the use of 5G radio signals in and around airports. They're warning that the high-tech phone networks could lead to catastrophic disruption. Executives at firms including Delta, United and American Airlines say the signals can interfere with plane instruments, which could mean planes could not safely fly, especially in the US, and that some planes located overseas could become stranded. Joining me now to talk about this is the aviation analyst, Alex Macheris. Alex, is this a peculiarly American problem? It's unprecedented, but the reason why this is specifically a problem for the US, because of course 5G exists almost everywhere else on Earth in, in, in developed nations. The reason this is a problem for the US is because the 5G that they were hoping to roll out everywhere this week is stronger. It's on a stronger frequency. And right. basically, in simple terms, it's closer to the frequency used by key instruments in the cockpit. It's that overlap that the industry is very worried about. Now, so AT&T and Verizon, now they've agreed to delay deployment for two weeks um, So, um, because of fears over safety. Um, is there now a possibility, do you think, that this whole 5G uh, development could be put back or delayed for much longer? Well, what these networks have agreed to do is they've agreed to pause the rollout near to airports specifically. Right. But the problem is, is that because the Federal Aviation Administration, that's the aviation regulator in the US, because they put out this statement warning of these potential risks, we have seen a huge impact almost immediately of airlines, not just in the US, but around the world saying, hold on, we can't take that chance. And, and as, as recently as today, you've got Singapore Airlines, Korean Air, Emirates, British Airways, Austrian, Lufthansa, all of them having to make adjustments in light of what they are calling the 5G chaos. So some of them are cancelling flights altogether to the US and are saying until the picture becomes clearer as to how the White House will intervene, we are not flying there. Others 
are choosing other aircraft that are less at risk of interference. So because the ones that we think are most affected are the 787s, the 777s and the 737s. Alex, what I don't understand is why has it been left so late for these fears to be voiced? Well, the fears have been voiced within the aviation sector, I'd say probably predominantly for the last four weeks or so. But the industry is so great at talking to itself and actually it's very bad at communicating outside to the public. So that wall was never broken until, of course, we reach the 11th hour where the flight cancellation started to be scheduled. And we now finally have the attention of the world in what is what airline leaders are telling me a legitimate cause for concern which is why we're seeing these flight cancellations and andrew you know the last thing the aviation sector would be I quite doing have, now. i was just going to say i mean i mean you've it's been such a devastating 22 years for the aviation industry um but i guess these two companies at&t and verizon they've spent billions of dollars licensing these this new 5g service they're not going to want to pull back are they i mean but do they have to have them close to airports can't they position them somewhere else that's the airlines argument or the airlines arguments are saying hold on look at countries like the uk look at countries like south korea look at countries like france that have 5g but it's not to the level of strength that the u.s want to introduce it which ultimately is is leading to this concern of interference they are saying why don't we replicate what works elsewhere where there have been no known incidents or no um uh, kind of known or recognized um even flags of the fact that oh you know we were close to having interference here that has not happened elsewhere so the u.s is saying let's go with what works in terms of the airlines requesting that but but we've had silence. And as you know, these big network companies have a lot of influence. They've spent a lot of money on this. They want their rollout to go ahead. Yeah, so currently all eyes are on the White House as to how the Biden administration will intervene. But say so that was my final question. Are we expecting um, the White House to say something? We're expecting the White House to address this. Yes, they were very kind of blasé about it over the last couple of days, insisting that they're working with their stakeholders, but with presented with mass flight cancellations, not just in the U.S. itself, but from foreign airlines globally heading to the U.S., they are finally now going to have to take some kind of decision. And I think it's going to be a bit of a balance that keeps both the industry happy, but also the network companies fascinating and um we'll we'll be certain to report it when we when the white house do finally intervene that's the aviation analyst alex macheras thanks for joining us visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe and get access to all our podcasts videos opinion pieces and much more if you want to get in touch tweet us at mailplus or me at tory boy pierce so new building regulations could mean conservatories could become a thing of the past from as soon as June this year, new regulations are designed to tackle rising temperatures in UK homes as some summers now projected to reach 40 degrees Celsius. Joining me now is Andrew Mitchell. He's Director of Energy Services at Construction Consultants Stromer. Mr Mitchell, the Conservatory is sort of part of English, Scottish, British life, isn't it? Could it really be? Are they really on the way out? Um, I don't want to disappoint you, but no, I don't think they will be. Um, the reality is this legislation hasn't been designed to outlaw conservatories. A conservatory, as long as it's a separate element of, away from the house, i.e. firmly broken, then we can still have them. Um, so it's kind of got a bit sort of lost in the wash, this sort of definition. 
And who is making these changes? Well, ba- basically, the building regulations have come in. So there's a new building regulations dealing with summer overheating within dwellings, okay? Yeah. Um, and that, that, there is a problem, okay? Our, our homes are going to get warmer in those peak months, um, July and August in the summer. Um, and as a consequence of that, there, there is a, a health risk to us. You know, if you, um, I'm sure most of the listeners will understand that if you have repeat nights of high temperature, it affects your sleeping patterns. And the World, World Health Organization have mapped this, that people have unfortunately died because of um, the way dwellings overheat during these peak months. So this legislation is important and it's the right thing to be looking at, but it doesn't really, it's got mixed up with this, this um, conservatory issue. You won't be able to have a conservatory which directly enters your property. So you'll have to have a door and a thermal break between the two to allow them to continue. But the fundamentals, uh, it's, it's a bigger, bigger story than, than just conservatories. And this is because the World Health Organization has issued this report which says temperatures should be kept to 32 degrees during the day, 24 degrees at night. If you've got a conservatory attached to the house and we have these really hot summers, uh, particularly at night, it's going to, to, the house is going to be cooking a bit, isn't it? Well, it's not really the conservatory that I would suggest is going to be just the issue. It's a bigger story. It's how we design our houses, how we make yeah. them work, and how we purge, ventilate them. So what we want to have a position, you know, is we can open windows to allow airflow between yeah. within the property to take away that temperature that's built up in the day. But also we need in the daytime, we need to be in a position where we have devices, activities around the house that stop the solar gain coming in. And that can be shading, etc., and it can be reducing the glazing areas. Um, and you know, if we when we go on holiday, um, to when we're allowed to go on holiday to the Mediterranean, you know, those houses have got shutters. They got shutters for a reason, you know, because it's warmer there, and that's a sort of pattern we need to follow. And is it going to be worse in our? I'm thinking in our big cities because they tend to be warmer by definition than if you're out in the country or in a smaller town. Correct. So the biggest the, the, the risk um, dwelling types are apartments, okay? If you've got an apartment which is west-facing, that would be the worst case um, because the sun's lower when you're generally in the property in the evenings. Um, so those are the ones that are going to be... The, 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 those are the ones that are overheating now, okay? Um, we've got problems with some apartments now. They're overglazed. We've got an architectural flair in this country at the moment to put lots of glazing areas into apartments. So those are the ones that will be the first to have a big change um, due to this criteria. We've looked at it already. Um, the GLA within London particularly have, have been worried about this problem and the building regulations are catching up. And the building regulations, of course, just finally, they'll apply to new buildings. What's, ha- what's going to happen about existing buildings? Um, unfortunately, there's nothing in legislation at all at the moment. Okay, so there isn't really anything driving that at all. Um, this, you know, if you do a refurb, etc., doesn't really com- apply to any of these sorts of um, this legislation at the moment. But whether that comes in the future, um, we'll have to wait and see. It might have to because, um, if, as I say, if these summers really do get as hot as 
we as the as the world health organizations have been predicting we could have some real hot houses up and down the land yes absolutely absolutely and you know and we've got a little bit of a contradiction so the newer buildings um, are going to be better thermally performing because we want them to reduce their energy consumption and carbon emissions in the winter and that does have a little bit of an effect for the summer obviously you know a well insulated building will, will not dissipate the heat as quite as quickly in the summer months so you know the, the two things have to be addressed at the same time that's Andrew Mitchell. He's Director of Energy Services at the construction consultant Stroma. Thanks so much for joining us. Time for our regular update in the world of sport now with Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood. So three days in a row with the podcast um, this week, Matt, but um, a lot going on. Um, Thorpe, he's in big trouble. Yeah, so Graham Thorpe, the England uh, assistant coach, kind of head of their batting um, the, the, the batting unit, well, you'd have thought he'd be in trouble uh, in terms of keeping his job after the way some of the England batsmen batted on this Ashes tour. Um, but he's actually also in trouble for his job now as a new video has come to light yesterday of, uh, of him being out on the, uh, on the source with some of the England players and some of the Australian players um, at 6am um, in, uh, in Hobart. Uh, the day after the the final humiliation in the uh, in the Ashes series, um, drinking till six in the morning, uh, hotel staff having to ask the, the the last stragglers from the party to go to bed. Um, there's been a suggestion that Thorpe was actually smoking a cigar inside the uh, inside the hotel, which obviously not allowed, uh, and was asked to move on, put it out, uh, refused to do so, and that's when the police were called. So, not a oh, great dear. end. I mean, no. these Ashes tours. When they go badly wrong, which they invariably do with England, it doesn't just end with the end of the cricket. There's always a huge fallout. Uh, there's always scapegoats. There's always people who lose their job. Uh, and it looks like Thorpe might be joining a fairly long queue of people who are under, under pressure, including, obviously, as we know, Silverwood, the coach, uh, and Ashley Giles, the head of cricket, and also Joe Root, the captain, um, who may uh, lose their position. So, yeah, just an ugly end to an ugly tour certainly is and Chelsea they've slipped up again and that's in the Premier League I think yeah absolutely yeah they um they were held to a draw last night by uh, by Brighton at Brighton not an easy place to go but obviously a team uh, with Chelsea's wealth and talent would be expecting to go to win there as they try and keep the pressure up on Man City well you know they're not doing that the title race looks pretty much over now Chelsea are um 12 points behind Man City who have a game in hand. So, you know, they're pretty much well and truly now out of the title race if they had any sort of lingering hopes. Um, uh, and it's really now down to Liverpool, see whether Liverpool can catch up with Man City. And this is not what Chelsea would have expected at the start of the season. They paid £100 million to sign Lukaku, uh, the striker, in order to close the gap on Man City. Uh, and you know that Chelsea, uh, the Chelsea owner... Roman Abramovich, he doesn't like not challenging for the title. And what happens when that happens? He sacks his managers. He sacks now, his managers. He sacks his managers. Now, Tuchel obviously won the Champions League at the back end of last season. So can he really sack a manager who won the Champions League about six months ago? Well, yes, he can is the short answer. And unless Chelsea improve quickly, they may even find themselves falling out of the top four, which means no Champions League football next season. And that's when uh, Roman really would be uh, reaching for the uh, reaching for the trigger. So interesting times at, at, uh, at Chelsea, and not in the way they uh, their supporters would want. 
Fascinating. And just finally, Matt, Monty's worried about St Andrews. What's that about? Yeah, so I put a bit of golf in. I know you love your golf. Of course I do. I know you do. We're at the start of the new season. Now, uh, big season ahead. Uh, we've got the Open is at St Andrews, the 150th anniversary. I don't know whether you're planning to go up there to watch any of the golf. but um, No, might uh, give that a miss, a... actually. Okay, but right, fine. But always a massive occasion when the Open is at St Andrews, um, you know, the spiritual home of golf. But Monty, Colin Montgomery is worried that the, the big hitters will make the course almost redundant because there's lots of things like, you know, um, little streams and brooks in certain places on this course. But because golfers have got so able to hit the ball so far, they're now taking a lot of these obstacles out of the out of the course. And the course will become, if the weather's right and it's calm, the course could become very, a very easy course where they can drive off the tee and on, on a par four and reach the green on a lot of the holes. So it's interesting to see what happens. Uh, you know, um, when they get there, obviously it's not until in the summer, um, but it's an interesting talking point and we'll rumble on all the way up to that Open uh, Championship. Can't wait for it to start. <laughs> I have to be quite so rude about my, one of my favourite sports. <laughs> That is our very fine deputy sports editor, Matt Gatford, who loves golf. And I'm sure at some point he'll be able to explain to me quite why he loves such a boring sport. Um, but always a joy to join, to, to join us and uh, we'll speak soon. Thanks, Matt. So since the 1990s, many of us have been adding probiotics to our diet. This is a way to eat a little more healthily. But the new health trend is for postbiotics, which mustn't be confused, of course, with prebiotics confused maybe you are well to help make sense of it all is professor glenn gibson joins me now he's professor of food microbiology and head of food microbial studies at the university of reading professor gibson um what is a postbiotic well i think you're right andrew there's a lot of biotics out there nowadays and it's quite quite difficult to understand. but anyway a probiotic which is first one you mentioned is the use of live microbes in the diet, positive microbes. A prebiotic is something which fertilizes them. So that's something upon which the goodies grow. And then a postbiotic, which is the more recent one, is actually the products of the microbes. So it's a bit of a chain of events in that you've got the microbes themselves, what they grow on, and then what they make. And um, the current idea is that any of these can be used as a way of intervening in people to improve gut health. And and why do they why do they improve gut health? What 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 is the benefit? What is the benefit well, what they, they bring? Do is the, the, the bacteria themselves are actually very good at inhibiting pathogens. So that's the negative microbes, and we, we know we know a lot about what negative microbes have done to the world in the last two years, of course. So they're very powerful at, in, at inhibiting them and crowding their space, getting them to to really not survive very well in in human body. What they also do is stimulate the immune response. So overall, we feel better resistance to, to such challenges and then quite importantly they also have the effect of dampening down inflammation and a lot of, of gut diseases are characterized by very severe inflammation in the guts right and and our postbiotics they are relatively new aren't they very new um i'm still not 
completely convinced myself whether it's yet another term we don't need or whether right. there's something in it. But it's, it's very, very early days. Um, we need, we need, I mean, I, I sound like a cliched scientist in that we, we need more studies is what scientists always say. But I think in this case, it is, genu- it is genuinely correct. Um, there's very little information out there on postbiotics. And at this stage, I would say I myself am not convinced yet of the advantages that they have of the other two approaches, those being pre and probiotics. Uh, but they're already on the market. People are already buying them. I think Holland and Barrett, for instance, have bought um, bought out a supplement which combines pre, pro and postbiotics. Okay. So they're putting, well, they're hedging their bets. They're putting all three together, which I guess is, is, yeah. is a pretty good idea. Um, again, I, I, out of the three, um, the one I would pick pick out would be the prebiotic one where you use something which is quite inert in the diet like high fiber or something to fortify beneficial bugs which are already in all of our guts i think to me that is the most preferential one it's 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 less fraught with difficulties over survival and getting the things into the correct place and so on and um what is is i mean if those for some of us don't take any supplements at all should we yeah. be taking supplements professor or should we if we just eat more healthy food do we need any of these supplements well that's that's a good one because um if we all had a healthy diet we we wouldn't need them um but the fact is that the vast majority of us don't eat for instance five pieces of fruit and veg every day which we're meant to i think the the yeah. latest information is that only about 18% of people in the EU can do so. So while these messages are well publicised and understood, getting them translated into practice is, is not really the reality of it. And so I, I feel we do need alternatives sometimes, and supplements in this case are, to me, a, a good alternative. Um, but, but like any scientist, I, I like to see the independent data that verifies something like a, 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 a postbiotic. And when, how, long do you, how long would you think that would take? I mean, these things are on the market now. I mean, is it six months, a year or something, Professor? Well, I think it's, it's longer than that. I mean, to me, the, the probiotic and prebiotic approaches are well proven, and I'm very yeah. supportive of good products that um, contain those approaches, although, you know, not all the products out there are good, that it has to be said. So I'm, I'm more supportive of them than I am for, for postbiotics at this stage very very interesting um and um can i just ask you do you take any supplements am i allowed to I ask do. that i take right. probiotics each day um and i take prebiotics as well and um actually during covid when covid started uh, way back in in march 2020 i told virtually everybody i know to please take probiotics um and prebiotics and sure enough now andrew we're actually seeing studies where these interventions have helped people recover from COVID and reduce symptomology. So, you know, these early hunches about how prone prebiotics may help cold influenza have now been extrapolated into the COVID situation literally just this week. In fact, yesterday there was yet a a, a paper published on this. Um, And so, you know, our early kind of predictions about how these harmless interventions could possibly help seem to have come have come through, which which I guess is good. Uh, you know, vaccination is the way forward, undoubtedly, um, but these things can help help as well. Interesting. That's Glenn Gibson. He's professor of food microbiology and head of food microbial studies at the University of Reading. Thanks for joining us. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app every weekday at 5pm. You can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.